Exposure to pollution generally in early childhood has effects on health and educational attainment and later life earnings. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Jonathan Cormer is an assistant professor at the University of Virginia's Department of Economics and the co-founder and director of the Environmental Inequality Lab. His research combines data with insights from economic theory and environmental science to better understand how economic activity and the environment influence one another. He is particularly interested in understanding how environmental quality affects economic opportunity and inequality. He spoke to me about his recent work with John Voorhees on the intergenerational effects of prenatal pollution exposure. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. We know that it's been pretty well established that disparities in health and economic outcomes persist across generations. I wanted to ask you what motivated you to look at the transmission of shocks that happened in early life specifically. In terms of our understanding of air pollution, as you say, it's the case that we know that air pollution is important in shaping economic opportunity. So a lot of research by folks like Reed Walker and Janet Curry and Michael Greenstone, amongst others, have shown that exposure to pollution generally in early childhood has effects on health and educational attainment and later life earnings. And then, you know, There's other broader literatures that have argued the importance of parental wealth and health in shaping opportunities for their children. But the sort of less clear dimension has been the degree to which pollution itself is having a persistent effect across generations. Now, we know that there is persistence in exposure. We've seen that in the, the broad literature across fields and looking at environmental justice, but much less on trying to causally identify how shocks in early childhood sort of persist across generations. And so that's what we sort of set out to try and understand in this project. So one of the main challenges of a researcher when they want to study how disparities persist across generation is the need to actually link individuals across generations. What is the novelty of your approach in terms of data collection? And can you tell us a little bit about the type of data you use? Yeah, so this project was really the first project that myself and John Voorhees, who's principal economist at the US Census Bureau Center for Economic Studies, and I have, have, have been working on. It's part of a broader research partnership that we've now been working on for nearly half a decade, thinking about trying to provide a more systematic understanding of environmental inequality in the United States. And so part of that work has been building up data infrastructure. And so this was the first project to really start thinking about it, which motivated then the broader work that we've been doing. And so in this data, you know, what we start with is we take everyone from the decennial censuses in the year 2000 and everyone who's ever responded to the American Community Survey, which is a very popular data set that people in the US have, have used, which is a representative household survey for about sort of four or five million people every year. It's a repeated cross-section. So we take everyone who's ever responded to that between 2005 and now we're using it up to 2020. So this is, you know, if you add up all those people, it's almost sort of 40% of the US population. And so using information from the decennial census and the ACS, we're then able to understand, you know, based on information questions that are asked, parent-child linkages. So we know for the head of households with certainty who their children are, 
because that's one of the questions that is asked. And then we also have these sort of probabilistic links as well. And so this allowed us just using this data set to put together a data set that gave us 150 million parent-child links. Uh, in more recent work, we're now at the stage where we were developing a microdata infrastructure called the Environmental Impacts Frame, which allows us to follow the near population of the United States with residential histories, employer-employee linkages, family structure, earnings from tax returns for nearly two decades. So going back to the late 1990s. And so uh, this was the origin project in more recent efforts. And so to be able to establish a causal link between in utero exposure to pollution, the role of environment and health disparities, you need a quasi-random variation. So could you walk us through the type of policy change you use to establish that causal link? challenge when we think about trying to identify the causal effects of pollution is that people are choosing where to live and pollution is choosing where to live based on where firms and other mobile sources of pollution are going on. And so it's difficult to tease out the effects of pollution from other sort of socioeconomic characteristics and changes, right? So polluted neighborhoods are less attractive. And so they tend to, we also know that pollution exposure is a lot higher for historically disadvantaged communities. And so to isolate the effects of pollution, we need to have some sort of plausibly exogenous variation, which is independent of other sort of more structural differences. And so what we do is we exploit what is now at least a well understood, if not well established approach in the literature, which is to exploit the introduction of the 1970 Clean Air Act amendments. Right. And this was arguably one of the most important federal policies to be implemented in the United States in the post-World War II era. And it's still one of the most important environmental regulations in the United States. And it was first implemented in 1963, but there were big concerns about you know, the degree to which it had much bite in terms of actually being implemented effectively and enforced. And this was largely due to sort of a lack of federal oversight. And the 1970 amendments were very important because they substantially expanded the role that the federal government had in terms of implementing and enforcing regulations. It resulted in the introduction of the EPA, as well as the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, which are still used to date to enforce and to monitor air quality in the United States. So we use the implementation of these amendments. So there were some areas that after the policy went into effect, were in non-attainment. So they had air quality which was above the maximum allowable concentrations. So these areas had too much pollution. And then there were other areas that were already in compliance. They had levels of pollution that were, were meeting the standards. And so this gives us sort of what we think of as in applied economics as classic difference in differences type of variation, right? We have cohorts of children who were born before and after the implementation of the Clean Air Act. And some of them were born in areas that were in non-attainment and so had to reduce pollution to become in compliance, whereas others were born in areas that, that were already in compliance and so didn't have to, to do anything. And so what's quite nice about this is that, you know, we think that this gives us some sort of plausibly exogenous variation in the pollution, which is independent of the sort of other socioeconomic characteristics that are going on. And this is, as I say, this is a widely used research design. It was first implemented by Ken Che and Michael Greenstone in 2003 and has been used by other many dozens of papers since. We're not reinventing the wheel here, sort of using what's been done in the past. One particular aspect of your research setting is the fact that exposure to pollution matters over the entire life, not just before birth. How do you overcome this challenge in your analysis? 
This is one of the things that we really like about this research design as opposed to others. So, you know, for example, you could think about other forms of exogenous variation in pollution, like, for example, wind speed or wind direction, right? If you have pollution that is blown from one area to another. But the point you're making is that children who are born in polluted neighborhoods are going to grow up in polluted neighborhoods. And what we're really wanting to do is to isolate the effects of early life exposure. With the Clean Air Act research design, right, the children who were born in areas that went into non-attainment, but were born before, still benefit from those reductions in pollution that we see at age one, at age two, at age three. So by comparing exposures for prenatal exposure and utero exposure for children born just after the implementation versus just before, we get that sort of additional year of clean air. That's what we're ending up isolating by comparing exposure in the nine months of gestation in non-attainment versus attainment areas. That difference compared to the non-attainment before and after, that's isolating that short acute period of exposure, which we're wanting to then use to then think about the, the longer run effects for the first generation. And then the focus of our analysis in this paper is to then see, well, how does that then affect the children of those that were in utero exposed sort of 50 years later? La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their work. And I wanted to ask you to explain maybe the intuition behind the exclusion restriction in your setting, what that means and why it's relevant in your context. When we think about trying to identify the effects of pollution, right, we're using this difference in differences research design that I explained as an instrument for pollution exposure. We're trying to tease out that sort of exogenous or like as good as random variation in pollution to then interpret our effects as the effects of pollution on later life outcomes, as opposed to the effects of the Clean Air Act. Right? It has to be the case that the Clean Air Act only affects the later life outcomes of the second generation through reductions in pollution. Right? That's what we mean by the exclusion restriction, right? And so the main threat to that assumption in this context would be that there's this classic idea in environmental economics and, and economics generally, which is that there's this trade-off when we think about environmental regulations between improving environmental quality and the economic costs associated with that, right? And so if the 1970 Clean Air Act resulted in declines in industry and job loss, like the environmental regulation kills jobs hypothesis, then it's possible that the parents of these children suffered income losses, which could also have affected the gestational environment. And that could have contributed to later life outcomes for themselves as also the later life outcomes of their children. Now, we can't rule that out. But what I would say is that those effects are going in opposite directions. Right. So that's the first thing. And secondly, work that has explored the costs of the 1970 Clean Air Act on workers suggests that, you know, well, actually, the work that's been done on that area is the 1990 Clean Air Act, which was a sort of a later stage. But the work that has looked at the economic costs of the Clean Air Act more generally has tended to find that actually it affected a very small share of the working population, about 0.7%. Whereas the benefits in terms of improving environmental quality affected everyone. And so as a sort of share of those benefits of the costs, we think that it would likely be a small effect. Now, as I say, we can't rule it out. The effects are going in opposite directions. So one might you know, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than this, but one might naively think that 
If anything, what we end up with is a lower bound estimate of these effects. But we try to be transparent about that in the paper, but we don't think it's a first order concern, at least for the 1970 clean errors. What we do see is that, you know, even if you don't want to hold that assumption to be true, then at least the effects that we do identify is the effect of environmental regulations on later life outcomes and on intergenerational effects. So then it's just a change in interpretation, right? It's instead of saying this is the effect of pollution on the intergenerational effects of pollution, what we end up identifying is the intergenerational effects of the Clean Air Act, which is still, we think, of importance. So specifically, how do you quantify this overall effect of early life exposure to pollution? We have the linkages for parents, right, that we talked about. So we know the parents were the ones that we identify their exposure in gestation. And we have this information from the rich data infrastructure. We have, we know, place of birth and date of birth, right? So we know where they were born and when they were born. And we then link this with pollution data from EPA monitors that were available at the time. And that gives us then the sort of 270 day gestational exposure to particulate matter, total suspended particles, which was the form of particulate matter that was regulated at the time. So you can think of this as everything from very fine particulate matter up to sort of dust and grains of sand, which we know have important physiological effects on gestational developments, cardiovascular health, development of the brain and, and the lungs. And so it has these important physiological links that then affect health and education later in life. So we have that information. And so what we're interested in is building on the existing literature that has documented these later life effects, but combining that by identifying the children of the parents, we can then look at the effects of parental gestational exposure on educational outcomes 40, 50 years later, which we're very excited about. And so what we show is an additional sort of 10% reduction in particular matter. 10 micrograms, which is a very abstract sort of number, but it's basically a 10% reduction, is associated with about a two and a half percentage point increase in the likelihood that the children of those that were in utero exposed go to college, which is quite a big effect. It's you know, relative to the mean, it's not huge, but this acute change in exposure to pollution in utero is shaping not only the later life outcomes of the first generation, but it's also having effects on the second generation 40 to 50 years later. So we can imagine that there could be several mechanisms behind these effects, uh, both biological impact or income impact. What can you do to try to disentangle between them? Having found this effect, we were interested in kind of thinking about well, what are the mechanisms underlying this? And we think this is important because broadly speaking, you know, there's two pathways through which these effects could, could occur, either sort of through hereditary channels so one might think that gestational exposure to pollution could result in a, a permanent change in gene expression, what are referred to as epigenetic changes, and that might be hereditarily passed down from parent to child, and that could shape potential sort of capabilities. Or it could be the case that there are these economic mechanisms through the fact that parents are healthier, therefore they're able to be more productive, they earn more money, they have greater human capital, which may be sort of parenting human capital as well as productive human capital in the workplace. And so they may that, that may then shape the economic opportunities of their children. One of the interesting things that we have in our data is we know whether children are biological or whether they are adopted or, or stepchildren. And 
And so we first explore this hereditary mechanism. We don't find any any meaningful difference in the outcomes between adopted or stepchildren and biological children, which suggests that our mechanisms are happening through economic channels. Now, one could just sort of do a simple back of the envelope calculation and say, okay, well, we know what the effect of early life pollution exposure is on income. We have a basic sense of what the effects of income are on going to college and later life outcomes of children. So why do we even need to write this paper? Right. Why don't we just take some sort of intergenerational elasticity, multiply it by the dollar change, and that's the answer. What we show is that if we did this, we'd substantially underestimate the intergenerational consequences. We find that, you know, at most, based on existing literatures, the income effect that we estimate for the first generation can explain about 20% of the college attendance effects. Now, this either means that existing literature is substantially underestimating the effects of parental income on college attendance, or that there's other things going on, which means that we shouldn't be relying on these sort of simple back of the envelope calculations. Uh, one of the things that we do to explore these additional channels is to link data, and it's a smaller sample, but link data that we have with the American Time Use Survey. And inspired by some of the work that Joe Price and others have done, we look at the how, how parental exposure to pollution in utero affects parental time use. And we see that parents that were exposed to lower levels of pollution spend more quality time with their children. So that's suggestive that there might be this sort of investment angle as well as resources angle going on. But yeah, it does seem to be the case. In terms of early evidence, we can't you know say anything with, with certainty in this part of the paper, but it suggests that parental investment and parental resources do appear to be sort of the core mechanisms that are driving this yeah, intergenerational transmission. So you have a way to compare the total effect of exposure to pollution, not just for one generation, but for the next one as well. How does the computation differ when we account for the next generation? And how should this affect the way we think about policy? If you think about the way that organizations like the EPA and other environmental agencies do cost-benefit analysis, right? They have to date tended to focus on the health effects. Right. And the broader economic effects is something that economists have in more recent years spent more time thinking about. But it's currently the case that in calculations, mortality benefits account for sort of 93 percent of the benefits that the EPA uses in terms of their benefit cost calculations. Now, what we do is just very simple back of the envelope calculations. We sort of take the first generation earnings effect for the entire 1971 cohort, I think it was. And we say, OK, well, you know, everyone born there in that cohort, what would be the benefit to them in terms of later life earnings? That's the first generation benefit, which isn't included in the EPA cost benefit analysis, right? And earlier work by Reed Walker, Adam Eisen, and Myra Rosson Slater sort of makes this point that, oh, we should be counting these earning benefits too, because if we're not, then we're substantially underestimating the effects. What we then show is, well, actually, in addition to the first generation effects, we have these multi-generational benefits that are being realized because of parents being healthier and wealthier. And when we sort of add up the combined first and second generation discounted lifetime earnings effects, right? So we're discounting the second generation implied earnings from college attendance going back 50 years to the sort of birth of their parents. So there's a huge amount of discounting going into that. And we still find that the first and second generation lifetime earning effects is 50% larger than the total first generation effects that sort of are calculated in, in, in the Isinatel paper. And just to sort of compare that to the mortality benefits, this combination, when we add the first and second generation benefits together, this is about between 55 and 70% 
of the monetized damages associated with infant mortality. And so this isn't some sort of like trivial rounding error that's added onto the mortality benefits. We're actually missing a pretty substantial chunk of the benefits column when we don't account for these broader economic benefits. And I think that this gets back to a point I was making earlier about this sort of discussed trade-off between the costs and benefits of environmental regulations in terms of like environmental regulation killing jobs versus the environmental benefits. But there are huge economic benefits, not just in terms of health, but in terms of the productivity of workers in these factories. And so there are, you know, economic benefits in terms of production to environmental regulations. I don't think it should just be seen as a cost. And so after working on this project, I wanted to ask what were your thoughts on the directions for future research on long-term economic outcomes? This project was the first in a broader research agenda that John, John Voorhees and I have been working on through the Environmental and Inequality Lab, which we set up a couple of years ago in 2020. And this really motivated our interest in trying to understand the contribution that environmental quality more broadly, not just air pollution, but trying to understand, for example, exposure to natural disasters, extreme heat, wildfires, flooding, right? What is the, the distribution of exposure to those things? And what are the distributional consequences of those events? It's well established that there are disparities in exposure to air pollution and other sort of uh, non-mobile sources of pollution, but providing sort of systematic and comprehensive evidence of this for the near population of the US, we think is, is very important. But in terms of building on the sort of long run effects side of things, one of the things we really want to understand is now that we have this sort of well-established literature based on micro evidence, well identified to the best of our abilities, at least, you know, how much does this really matter? Right. We know that there are these broader patterns of inequality and indifferences in opportunity in the United States. And we know that pollution matters, but how much does it matter? And so the work we're currently doing is trying to get into that question a little bit more. It's more of an R squared question than a beta hat question, right? Given that we know that there are these disparities in exposure to air pollution and that disparities in terms of black-white gaps in exposure, as well as black-white gaps in, in economic opportunity and mobility and inequality, how much can pollution contribute to this stuff? Because uh, pollution is shaping education, it's shaping health, it's shaping decision-making, productivity, later life earnings, ability to participate in the labor force. And so as sort of a fundamental driver of maybe these broader proximate causes in, in health disparities as well, we are interested in understanding the contribution of, of air pollution. And our early work is suggesting that it can, it can account for a non-trivial share. Not majority, of course, but it's, I think, relative to what a lot of people's priors are in terms of the role that environmental quality plays in these, in these more systemic patterns of inequality and opportunity, air pollution, I think is a larger contributor than people have historically thought. And so that's the direction we're heading in. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you could share a recommendation with us of a book, a movie, or anything that inspired you. In terms of a book, one of the books that I've really enjoyed reading recently is a great book by the sociologist Jill Lindsay Harrison. So I think one of the important things working in the space of environmental inequality and environmental justice is the importance, and I think economists should do this more generally, is engaging in other fields. And one of the areas within the environmental justice debate that economists haven't engaged in as much is this idea of procedural justice. So when we talk about inequality, you know, there's different types of inequality. There's distributional inequality, the idea that there are differences in exposure to pollution, for example. And then the distributional justice is one area. 
And then procedural justice is this idea that people should have equal opportunity to sort of engage in the process. How closure is is happening and, and engaging in the policy process and the legal process for affecting outcomes. Basically having a say. Economists haven't done a lot of work in this space, but Jill Harrison has this fantastic book, which is based on the time that she spent within government agencies in the United States, trying to understand the ideas of environmental justice from the regulator perspective and the sort of the challenges and issues that they face and maybe some of the problems that exist in terms of procedural justice within within government agencies. So that's, that's a really interesting book for those that are interested in procedural justice considerations. I think more generally in terms of lay academic reading, there are a couple of really great general economic perspectives articles in recent years. Fantastic paper on environmental justice by Spencer Banzaf, Lalamar and Christopher Timmons in the winter 2019 version of the General of Economic Perspectives. And then for those that are interested in the Clean Air Act, which is now 50 years old, you know, Janet Curry and Reed Walker have a great piece in the fall 2019 version of the General of Economic Perspectives on the history of the Clean Air Act and what economists have had to say about it. So I think that gives uh, a number of things for people to read if they're interested in what we've been talking about. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for sharing this with me. Thank you for having me. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Van Effanterre in Toronto. I want to thank Aisha Philippe for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.